0: and those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane back to reality. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your travel experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Terms apply.
1: Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom Help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian.
2: Welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer here with Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky. They are my co-hosts on this, the Longform Podcast. Hey, good to see you guys. Big hey from Aaron. (laughs) Yeah. A lot of enthusiasm. Very enthusiastic about the show we have for you uh, this week. I talked to Alzo Slade, who is a correspondent uh, for Vice News' show, which is on Showtime. He's also the host of a podcast. Called Cheat. And he is also a former, or actually uh, continues to be a stand up comedian. So, I guess my inspiration for this episode, other than just enjoying his work, I like to talk to people who come from different backgrounds to journalism. This was not uh, his uh, predefined career path. Uh, yet he has, uh, slid into it, uh, very effectively. in uh, in my opinion, and I wanted to talk to him about how all of these different pursuits came together, uh, what it's like putting together stories on video, which is actually something we have not touched on all that much on this show and, uh, probably, uh, not going away. I think video is here to stay guys. What do you think? You think so? Aaron's prediction. Video here to stay. I don't know. I I got a lot of oddball predictions, but a very good episode. uh, Thanks to him. And of course, thanks to our friends over at Vox Media who help us make this show. Now here's Aaron with Alzo Slade. Welcome to the program, Alzo Slade.
3: What's up, man? What's cracking?
2: I like to talk to people on the show who... Have had uh, like different paths that have led them into journalism and reporting. And uh, uh, you are a correspondent for Vice News, but I understand that you are also a stand-up comedian. So instead of asking you how you got into journalism, I'm going to flip it and ask you how'd you get into stand-up.
3: Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I got into stand-up the way many stand-ups get into the the craft. You know. Like I was one of the kids at the back of the bus, you know, roasting, you know, and getting roasted. You know, that's where I got my chops. Like you, the cat, the kid in the back of the bus, the kid in the back of the classroom that is messing with everybody else while they're doing their work and you're not doing any work or the work that you do is to the level of like C, C standards, you know what I'm saying? Just just so you don't get in trouble. So um, yeah, middle school, I was a class clown high school I was a class clown and people in college my freshman year were like man you should you should just you should get on stage and and see if it can work see what happens and i would host talent shows my freshman and sophomore year in college and you know i was just having fun with it never intended to make a career of it
2: so if you weren't thinking uh that uh you'd make a career of stand up what were you thinking uh during that period that, that you wanted to do with your life
3: So this is the thing, Aaron. Like when people ask me about my path to where I've arrived, it's different twists and turns with no intention of arriving where I am right now. So while I was in college, I was in ROTC my freshman year. I watched Top Gun when I was in high school and I was like, I'm going to be a fighter pilot. I wanted to be one of the blue angels flying F-18s in United States Marines. And uh, so I was in ROTC in college, aviation guarantee, all of that. And my pops told me, "Is like, son, you're not going to make it. You're not going to make it in the military. And I thought that odd coming from my dad, because he usually supported anything that I did as long as it was positive. And I consider that to be positive. He was like, no, son, I'm you know, I support you. I'm just letting you know I know you. And it's not gonna work because you ask too many questions. You're too curious. Like you wanna know why. You're you're a thinker. And it's not to say that everybody in the military is not a thinker, but that's the trajectory of the conversation that, you know, he had with me. And I I was like, nah, I'm gonna be fine. This is I wanna fly jets, man. I get in the ROTC and I'll never forget, this captain from the Navy came and did uh, a lecture. He was a guest, he did a lecture. And the lecture was on blind obedience, Aaron. <laughs> I was like, what? This dude said, if you're part, let's say you're part of a platoon you marching and then you, you see a cliff up ahead. If the If the leader does not give the command to divert from the path that you're going you are to continue marching because you are to understand that he has the best interest of the mission at heart I was like no bro not no not the mission I'm to, what about us you know what i'm saying and so that I, the whole thing of blind obedience i was like mm, no no i don't think this, this is gonna work for me I was, pops you were right and then i went and um started reading all these books Because I went to HBCU, Prairie View A&M University, like one of the best decisions I ever made. And so it's like 98% black people there. And, you know, so you start to understand who you are as a black person in this world, black American in this country. And um, I started reading all the books, the Revolutionary 101 books, Aaron.
2: Tell me some of these books.
3: These are the books that are like, you know, Dr. Carter G. Woodson. Miseducation of the Negro, Dr. Naeem Akbar, uh Breaking the Chains of Psychological Slavery, Um, you know, ISIS Papers, they came before all these books. And some of the books, most of the books, Stolen Legacy, George J. Like, these are the, the revolutionary 101 books. And a lot of the books, they tell you black folks did everything. White folks ain't do nothing. And if white folks say they did something, it's because they stole it from black people. Now, some of that narrative may have some truth in it. You know what I'm saying? But I was like, ah, you know, there's no zealot like a convert, right? And so I read all these books and I'm like, everybody needs to know this. I'm like, you know, I started with rocking the Dashikis, The Black Fist Around My Neck, all of that. Grew my hair out. And I was like, I want people to know about this. And so I switched my major to history. And communications i was like i'm gonna write and direct historical films and documents because people need to know about this and then i said uh wait a minute a lot of these books are legit but some of them i don't know then you know because when you read books you want to learn more about where they get their information from and so i'm like wait some of these books don't have a bibliography, no work cited, no footnotes. I'm like, where the hell y'all getting this information from? And Aaron, it was that time where I recognized I wanted to develop my intellect and put the class clown component on the back burner. And I was like, a real scholar who's interested in intellectual development should be interested in a disinterested way, you know, where there's no bias. It's like where you seek truth, and even if that truth contradicts what you consider to have been truth before, you have to be willing to swallow your pride and accept the thing that you have learned that may not be what you wanted to hear. You know what I'm saying? Because before I was I was reading books. I I find myself on a trajectory of reading books that confirmed what I wanted to believe. And that's not true intellectual development. And so I went to graduate school to study philosophy to see if I could hang with the big boys and you put philosophy with comedy and both of those things are crafts in which you study human behavior and comment on it and raise questions and next thing you know I'm sitting here talking to a cool ass dude on this cool ass podcast
2: okay well I gotta ask some questions about along the way I'm actually curious about, you know, as you were having those sort of revelations internally and you're going to like a HBCU, like what were the discussions like you had like with other students? Did you feel like there was like pushback when you sort of fell out with these these books or fell out with those ideas?
3: One of the amazing things about going to a university like that, like Prairie View and University, it's a safe place to explore those ideas and i think that's what college should be within difference of it being a hbcu or a predominantly white institution like as a young person you're you're in the nascent stages of exploring who you are as as an adult you know as a young adult and so you should have the freedom to to engage with ideas and 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 feel like it's okay to be wrong in your opinions you know and so when, you know, I'm reading these books, I found, you know, my roommate was like-minded. Um, and I started to recognize that there are a number of my fellow students who had questions around these things, but didn't necessarily have the answers, you know? And so um, I started this this discussion group called Mental Calisthenics. And we we put the chairs in a circle and start talking about history, politics, philosophy, religion, and religion is is deeply rooted in the black community and so when you start talking about some of this stuff it ruffles feathers you know you get emotional you start talking about the way you know because you challenge you're challenging the way that people were raised the way we were raised i don't want to say people at third person because i you know this is stuff that's woven into the fabric of my identity as well so to answer your question directly it was received but there was tension but we all know there is no change without friction and so in order for us to unlearn some of the the things that are detrimental to us as individuals and as a community, it you know, it's going to be some
2: some heat. When you started trying to put those ideas into some kind of a format, whether it's um, stand up or I don't know what other uh, kinds of like uh, media you tried out, like what was it like? sort of taking in a bunch of reading and then trying to express yourself publicly for the first times?
3: Well, you know, I was well into my adulthood before I really translated any of that into comedic form. Uh, I think at that time, the expression of those ideas was in the format of, you know, conversations you know, panel discussions, like I, in college, I held a a program called Negativity, N-I-G-G-A-tivity. And it was, you know, about mental enslavement. And, you know, I got pushed back from that, but it was standing room only. And so during that time, my comedic side was just with the homies clowning. And then when I was in the environment in which I would express some of the things that I was reading or in these discussions that really wasn't a part of it. Like I wasn't in there making jokes about the stuff that I was reading. I made, you know, joke at the top of a conversation or a program to kind of break the ice and loosen things up. But once we got, once we got in it and rolled our sleeves up, we're about that action talking about the business of how we came to think what we think and be
2: who we have become. And what brought you uh, to Vice News as a correspondent? How did that,
3: that happen? <laughs> Yo, that's it's funny because I uh, I have uh, managers like two managers that are really great. They look out for me, and um, Vice was looking to expand their bench of correspondents, and the casting person at Vice had a relationship with my managers and as I understand it, she was looking for a specific person that they represented one or two specific people. And those people weren't available. And my manager said, well, those folks aren't available, but we think we got somebody that you'll like. And then they sent me in to do a screen test. And I don't really, I don't come from journalism, you know what I'm saying? So, you know, they they, I do a screen test and, you know, mock interviews. And then just like a, any other audition, when I leave, I just wipe my hands of it and don't think about it. Next thing you know, my manager said, hey, they like this screen test. Uh, they want to come in and talk to you, the exec. So I go in and I sit down with Josh and Madeline, who are the executive producers of Vice News Tonight. There's, that was on HBO then. I didn't know who they were. I mean, I googled them, you know what <laughs> I'm saying, and but and then later on, I come to find out they're a big deal in journalism, you know. And I'm sitting in the conference room with them, and we're just chopping it up, you know. And they're asking me about my interest, and I still like I don't I don't I don't recognize the gravity of who they are or what the conversation is. And even if I did, I'm not sure I'd care. Um, and so, you know, as a grown man, you just go into these things and you just be you. You know, have a conversation, and then next thing you know, and like, hey,
2: we want to work with you. All right, let's do it. Did you go any through any kind of like journalism boot camp there as you geared <laughs> no, up? No, sir.
3: <laughs> no, sir. Let me tell you. Let me tell you. Let me tell you what happened, Aaron. So I go in, and I'm there for like maybe a week. Week and a half, is buzzing, you know, and this is during the the uh, Kavanaugh uh, hearings, and they're like buzzing, and and then they have these meetings. I'm in these meetings, and they got, you know, they're talking about the hearing and how they want to cover it, and. And they're sending people all across the country to cover different aspects of this story. And I'm I'm in my desk and I'm trying to like sink, you know, <laughs> and not be seen. You know? I'm trying to sink into my seat and not be seen. And they're like, Alzo, we got to get you out in the field. We're going to send you to, to Nashville. And they sent me to Nashville, the Nashville airport. And my job was to talk to people in the airport because they have this big courtyard where there's a big TV and people were watching the hearings on the TV. So it was basically engaging in in people that were in transit and waiting at the airport and asking them how they felt about the hearings and talking to people I can do. That you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm like my dad, like he doesn't meet strangers. So I grew up around that. We, you know, you're not afraid to just talk to people and engage them because people are cool. People are interesting. And so they just let me loose. And I'm just talking to a bunch of people in the airport. We, you know, people are serious. Some dude ended up crying because he couldn't believe what was happening to his democracy. One, one dude was, was, was funny. Another dude was, you know, a woman was, you know, like kind of carefree about it. And it was, it was a lot of fun. And uh, that was my first assignment, and that that ended up getting the Emmy, bro.
0: <laughs> when you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, "Chef, what course are we on? I've I've lost count." Or,
3: shoot that, shoot that.
0: And even... Checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.
1: Terms apply. Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian Software for everything from space exploration and green energy to delivering pizzas and podcasts. Whether you're a team of two, at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian.
2: It's really clear in a lot of the segments. I should say full disclosure that my wife is an editor on this show, so I've seen a bunch of it. I've seen... Probably like I mean you must have done what like a hundred segments now. It's like a pretty high volume game, and you pretty comfortable with a huge, huge uh, variety of different people that that you might encounter. Like, is is that something that you feel like like stand up contributed to? Like, what are you thinking when you just engage someone and you're like, ah, I just got to like get them going here,
3: Aaron? Bro, we 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 ain't no different from each other. Like, human beings, we are the same. Like, when you come out of the womb, listen, this is what you need, bro. You need to eat. You need to sleep. You need to pee. You need to shit. And when it comes to emotional needs, you need to feel loved. You need to feel, you know, there's compassion. You know, you need to feel, like, you know, significant and of value And when it comes to, like, the feeling of significance and feeling valued, I think that's where we start to get into trouble. Because the same things that you hold of value, I may not in the same way. You know what I'm saying? And so if you, like, nothing nothing means anything intrinsically, right? Like, the American flag, right? It's made of nylon. It's three different colors, right? It's a piece of fabric. We give it meaning. And it's not to say we should or we shouldn't, but we give it meaning. And that meaning is important to a whole lot of people. But then there's some folks that look at it and it doesn't mean anything, right? But if I respect the fact that it means something to you, then we good. We're okay. The moment that I don't respect the meaning that you give to something is when we have problems. The moment that I don't respect that American flag that means so much to you because your grandfather fought for it is when we have problems. The moment that you get mad at me for not respecting the flag, because what I see the flag represents is is being detrimental to my community as a black person. Then that's where we have issues. And so if I can engage you and recognize the perspective from which you come and at least give you an entry level or 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 human level of respect from the beginning, then the departure point for our engagement is a proper one as opposed
2: to an antagonistic one. Okay, I want to follow up on that, though. So I get if you're doing a piece, you know, it's got some kind of recognizable uh, American uh, archetypes out there that you've encountered before. You're like, okay, I kind of know where I am. kind of know how these people what their system of meaning is. But then you've also done pieces. Like you went to, uh, Dagestan Mm -hmm. and went to like the, like, uh, wrestling Academy there, the kind of like, uh, MMA factory.
3: Yeah. Them jokers crazy.
2: Okay. So that's like (laughs) people who have very different senses of meaning. And there's like a language barrier. And there's just like a bunch of like, um, like dudes wrestling six hours a day in this wrestling Academy. So, how do you seek out that same sort of system of values and meaning in a more like foreign environment? What were those experiences like?
3: Well, I think, you know, before, before even, you know, it's not as if I go into every story trying to identify what means the most to you and how can I, you know, but the root of every story that I do is curiosity. I just love to learn. And so you, you know, producer comes to you and say, hey, Alzo, did you know that in the UFC at the time, they're like 35 Russian fighters and over 20 of them are from Dagestan and they have a 90 percent win rate. You're like, what? What is it that they are feeding these boys over there to make them such good fighters? Like, what is it? What is their secret? I don't know. I'm curious, so let's go over there and see. And, you know, when people, you know, when you're curious about another one's culture or or a hobby or craft or whatever someone else is engaged in and you go in with your guard down and they recognize that you just wanna learn, you just wanna understand, man, they open the door. And next thing you know, I'm training with these young boys and they kicking my ass.
2: So what kind of like a research, like how much time do you have to to research one of these stories before you're like off the plane and video rolling?
3: Well, you know, what's crazy is I used to research. I'm talking about like every nook and cranny of a story that I was engaged in. But then I I recognized that sometimes I would do myself a disservice that would indirectly be doing the audience a disservice because nobody wants... wants to watch a, a reporter who knows everything. You know what I'm saying? Like there's some questions that, that I ask that of course I already know the answers to and I want the audience to know those answers too, but I'm also a proxy for the audience. And so I want to know just enough to be prepared for what I'm about to do or who I'm about to talk to, but not so much to the point to where I'm not surprised where I'm not learning, you know, because I want I want to be on this journey of discovery as well. You know what I'm saying? So and the audience is 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 tagging along with me. So it's my responsibility to be their eyes and ears and rebuttals in 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 these conversations and in these situations.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. You know, on this show, we talk primarily to people who work in print. And in print, you can, like, do all your research and figure everything out and then, like, go back and pretend that you didn't know at the beginning of the article and that you're learning and kind of craft this whole thing. If you don't get this footage in Dagestan, you can't, like, go back later and uh, fake it or anything like that. So, like, (laughs) are you kind of thinking about where these bits will slot into a, a final product or are you just, like, living in the moment in these situations?
3: Yeah, I mean, in pre production, we try our best to create um ways in which the audience can see. You know what I'm saying? Because it's it's a visual medium, it's TV. So we want we want to like when you're saying, ah, what is the audience gonna see when we're trying to convey this point? And so we'll we'll set something up. So like in Dagestan, we may be in the wrestling academy and and the coach will say, Hey, do you want to come see this? Well, we didn't plan for that. But, yeah, I want to see whatever you want to show me. So on the way to going to see what you're showing me, let's have a conversation. And we take the conversation. And next thing you know, he's introducing me to one of his, you know, promising students. And he's like, Alzo, did you bring your wrestling shoes? Yeah, I brought some wrestling shoes. Let's put them on. Let's go out to the mat. And so next thing you know, you know, one thing leads to another. And um, magic is made, so to speak.
2: You did a story, uh, I I think it's called uh, Heir's Property. Yeah. So uh, for people who are listening, go watch it. But it's sort of about the situations in which um, a large number of descendants end up owning a property that was maybe bought by their Mm great-great-grandparents. And Mm -hmm. there's this kind of underhanded business maneuver where... A property developer will buy out a few of the people and then force a legal action in which they're able to buy up the property and kick the people who are living on it off the property.
3: Aaron, and that's pretty good description. Good description. Okay. That excellent. was really, that was a great description. Hey, thank you. Like you, you should, you should write the clip notes to the piece. <laughs>
2: thank you. Thank you. So that's one of those things where I'm like, well, that's fucked up. But what's the story? Like, how do you turn that into? a visual story. So when you're like thinking about something like that, like how are you thinking about like dramatizing something like that when it comes to you?
3: Yeah, that's a very good question. Uh, I have to give a lot of credit to the producers um, that was on my team, Dave Mayers and Lyle Kendrick. You know, we worked hard to try and create a space where the audience could not only see what was happening but even feel what was happening and i think the the key to making a story like that into a visual one is not me going on a journey i mean it's it's me going on a journey of discovery but it's through the lens of these people who have been significantly affected by this loophole you know by this this tragic situation and so in those moments I show up, I shut up, and I listen. You know, and I and we just allow the people, the characters to to tell us about their journey. And while they're telling us about their journey, they're taking us to the places where the journey took them. You know, and so uh that 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 piece got a lot of attention and and won an award. And, you know, and people are quick to say, uh, you know, congratulations. And, you know, of course, you accept those um, congratulatory notes with gratitude. But you recognize that this is a fucked up situation. You know what I'm saying? And you're grateful for bringing light to the situation. But you still feel for the people that you profiled that have been hurt. And I think, you know, and I'm sure there's, I mean, I I imagine there's a number of journalists that can relate to this because a lot of the things that we cover are tragic situations in in this situation though. um, As tragic as it was and the aftermath of it, so many people, so many strangers since then to this day come up to me and um, just thank me for The story that we did, that story that we did, because they got their family together and they figured their stuff out. They got all their ducks in a row and dotted their I's and crossed their T's to make sure that that couldn't happen to them. And so as much as it was tragic for the Lewis family and it was, um, you know, their story has helped so many people. Now streaming only on Disney Plus.
0: My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour.
3: Experience Taylor Swift's record breaking Eras
2: Tour. Does anyone here know the lyrics? Ruben! Taylor
3: Swift, the Eras Tour. Taylor's version. With four additional acoustic songs. Now streaming only on Disney Plus.
2: When you were writing the like the voiceover parts of that piece, um, which I guess is probably like a you know, there's producers, there's other people who are in, but like in developing that voice, that voice where you have to say like I, you know, like where you're becoming the narrator a bit. I guess I'm curious like how much your own views contribute to a piece versus just kind of like, I got to tell people what happened when I went and talked to these people?
3: Yeah, um, it's still journalism, you know? So it's not an opinion piece. And in that respect, I present what it is that we feel like the audience needs to know in somewhat of an objective way obviously you can't be 100 percent objective by virtue of what it is you include and what you don't but as much as you can be objective and that's it uh as much as i'd like i mean there have been pieces there have been pieces where i i've turned to camera and i just let go (laughs) and it doesn't make it uh because that's not the place for it you know um I'll give you an example. I covered um the protests in Portland in 2020 and BLM protests and Antifa and all this. And um we're out in in the square and hundreds of people, hundreds of people. It's night, you got the the smoke and the all of this and uh they had the grandmothers out there with their signs and whatnot, and there were federal troops in in these little windows of the federal building with rifles with um rubber bullets, and they had federal troops lined up in front of the building they had uh the ballistic batons and all of that the tear gas and and Bro, all of a sudden, it, it was like hell broke loose. And they were just firing. They were just firing tear gas, ballistic batons, rubber bullets. I got shot twice. Cameraman got hit with tear gas. You know, we got our mask on. It's leaking through my mask. I'm coughing. And, and I'm seeing that they're, they're shooting the, the grandmothers. Like, they're just firing into the crowd indiscriminately. These are federal troops. It was chaos. And I and I just when we got to a distance where I could take my mask off, bro, I just looked in the camera knowing that it probably wouldn't be used. I just looked in the camera and I was like, this is fucked up. I said, I don't care. I don't care what side of the aisle you're on. I don't care if you red, blue, purple, gray, brown, fuchsia, black, white, tall, short, skinny, gay, straight, whatever. If you were here, you would know something about this shit ain't right. This ain't right. You can't necessarily put your finger on it, but these dudes, women looking like stormtroopers where I can't identify them, and they're just marching through the crowd, shooting indiscriminately. You got folks tearing up, crying and vomiting, and grandmothers on their ground getting pushed. I was like, man, no. Mm -mm. I just unleashed Aaron in the camera. I was like, "Mm -mm. this ain't
2: right, bro right but but that did not make the cut no what was the hardest thing like from the time that you are sitting there auditioning to the point where you're actually reporting these stories what was the hardest like skill to pick up what what did you have to learn in order to be able to do it
3: how offices work <laughs> <laughs>
2: I think I still haven't picked up that skill
3: because <laughs> I, I like this is this is the this is the closest to a, a full time job I've had since I was twenty four. You know what I'm saying? And so I work for myself from home and would do you know contract jobs and whatnot. And so when I would go into the office and there's someone slacking me, I didn't even know what slack was, by the way. And someone is slacking me or Google chatting me, and they're like three rows away, two desks down, and I could look and see them. I just get up and walk over there and be like, bruh, I'm sitting right here. <laughs> <don't use> <laughs> so, legit, Aaron, that was the most difficult thing for me. I'm like, I, to this day.
2: What kind of stories, like when you're coming up with your own concepts for stories, what kind of stuff appeals to you?
3: Usually the stuff that has, um, some sort of philosophical undertone, like I usually gravitate towards stories around religion or obviously, you know, stories that may affect, um, the black community or disenfranchised communities. And, but I really don't have a beat though, you know, uh, yeah, I don't I don't I don't have a beat. I never really wanted to have a beat. And so as I said before, curiosity is what kind of drives me to do the stories that I do. So if I read something and I'm curious and I want to know more, I'm like, hey, could this be a story? Or producers come to me and they're like, Alzo, I thought you may find this interesting. And I say, You know what? You were right.
2: Let's do it. Do you think about doing other forms of nonfiction, uh, going forward in your life, like starting off wanting to be a documentary filmmaker way back when has this experience like led you to have other reportorial, uh, ambitions?
3: I mean, you know, you always kind of ask yourself, are there different ways in which I can find ways to communicate ideas to people you know is it is it doing you know because the work that i do at vice isn't is an amazing way to do it you know the people that i work with there are smart and they are forward thinking and you know i really enjoy what i do with them there but then there's you know podcasts right now you do podcasts I was asked by a production company out of the UK if I'd be interested in hosting a podcast and that was a little over a year ago and and I, I said yes and it's been great it's you know it's a podcast called cheat where we look at scandals throughout history and try to unpack them in a way where we ask the question is it ever okay to break the rules
2: Well, let's talk about that because, like, I actually think very few people understand how one of these podcasts come together. Like, most people who want to get into podcasting are like, "Oh, let's get some mics," and me and my friend will talk about (laughs) reality TV together, right? And it's like, okay, if you want to do something sort of more high production level, more organized, like with a studio, so they came to you and they're like, "Hey, like, do they have the whole concept for the show when they came to you?"
3: Yeah, they yeah they pretty much had the concept, and they've been doing podcasts for quite some time. And so, you know, they they had a machine already in place that could facilitate some of the the things that need to be there for the production to work. And you know, producers come in and and they have ideas for episodes, and they were really they were really adamant about wanting me to be a part of the process and not just the presenter. And so I appreciated that and coming in, I had some ideas and I was new to podcasts then. So, you know, I didn't know what what it is that you're that you're referring to in terms of how much work it takes to put one of these things together. Right. So you have to get the 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 people that you're gonna interview, right? And just as, you know, there's some crossover um between how we work advice and and this in terms of wrangling characters to help tell the story. Cause you may you may have this, this these one or two key people and journalists can relate to this. And it's like you got them, boom. And all of a sudden they back out at the last minute. They're not concerned about your deadline. They're not concerned about the, the narrative structure that you put together that hinges upon their input, you know, and their participation. And so it's The same thing with podcasts, and so you're you, you're trying to tell a story about uh, a scandal that happened in history, and there are only one or two people that could really tell it in the way that it is genuine, and so you get them on the phone. Let's say you do get them on the phone, and you get them, and and you start to interview them, and then they're like, "Damn, these jokers are dry as." Wheat thins laying in the sun in July, you know what yeah. I'm saying?
2: Okay, so what do you do when you get a dry, boring person on the line? Oh, I'm man,
3: lie. I mean, if if we include them at all, you
2: know
3: what I'm saying? Like, if it's, if it's, if it's necessary that we in, include them, uh, I think you just, you know, we just do our best to make the narrative component that much more interesting, you know? Because it, you know, it is, it is, that means, you know, that means I have to earn my check when it's like that. You know, it's like, oh, Alzo, you gotta, you know, you gotta come in and and finesse this in a way that keeps the audience interested, especially if, like you said, you have an expert and they, and this is what they know, this is what they do, and this is what you want to hear but the way they present it, they've been, they've been in the trenches for so long with it. They think they're presenting it in a way that's easy to understand. No, bro, I do not understand that jargon that you're, I do not, under, and so as a presenter, as a narrator, it's my job to come after that and bring some context to it, bring some, like to simplify it as much as I can, you know? Um, and that's where, you know, that's where narrators and, you know, the presenters, you
2: you you earn your money. Alzo, thank you so much uh, for this interview.
3: Uh, thanks for having me, bro. It was fun.
2: Hey, thanks for listening to the Long Form Podcast. Uh, thanks to our editor, Seth Kelly, to our intern, Noel Matir, Of course, thanks to my co-hosts, Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky, I'm Aaron Lammer, and we'll be back with another episode next week.